0: Persecution is real. These are real people, real stories, real suffering, real faith, who serve a real God, a real Savior, who suffered for them that they might indeed have faith. Persecution is indeed real, and the Same reality this morning for us is that we do not experience this type of persecution. I would hesitate to say in confidence that there is no one in this room who has gone through what the individuals here have gone through. Although that does not mean that we do not experience significant light persecution as well. I stand here and I I realize that opportunities are lost, raises neglected, jobs denied, lawsuits brought forward, reputations maligned and beliefs mocked because you and I profess Christ. That's very real. We don't need to overlook that. We don't need to come here on a day and think about the persecuted church and be guilted because we're not experiencing what they experience. However, we should not also come and try to equate what we experience with what they experience. It is different. It is more intense. We must be thankful for the freedom we enjoy. We must be thankful for the opportunities we have the protections we have, but we also must recognize the possibility for more persecution in our land. We must recognize the opportunity for the growing intensity and the growing hostility towards Orthodox Christian beliefs. We cannot be ignorant of that. We cannot be unaware of that. And so today we gather as those who are free in our nation. We gather as those who do indeed experience light persecution. But we gather as those aware that our brothers and sister, sisters around the globe are experiencing quite intense persecution. Serious, life-threatening persecution. So the question that we need to ask this morning is, what is our response then to persecution? Or perhaps what will be our response to persecution? we look at Romans 12. As God saw fit, He brings us to Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, going down through verse 21, as Paul talks about how do we show a transformed life, how do we live a transformed life by the power of Christ towards those who are unbelievers. How do we live in faithfulness to Him in a world that is not serving Him? Hear the word of the Lord this morning in Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, where Paul writes... Now, as we read this passage, before we look at the things that Paul teaches us, there's, there's five things we're gonna look at in, in relation to persecution and what what Paul teaches us there. But before we do that, we need to remember who wrote this passage. We need to remember that that Saul the persecutor, who became Paul the persecuted, wrote this passage. We need to remember that, that Paul writes with a very unique perspective, one that is informed by being the, the distributor of persecution but also one that is informed by being the recipient of persecution. You remember the Paul of Acts 14, 19 to 23, who was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. and As he picks himself up and his friends pick him up and, and nurse him to care, he goes to the neighboring city of Derby, and he preaches the gospel there. And then what does he do? He returns to Lystra where he was beaten and left for dead. And we read that he went to Lystra. Why? To strengthen the soul's of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, there, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul walks back in beaten and bruised and says, I want to encourage you, I want to build you up, and I want you to know that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to remember the Paul of Acts 16 where he and Silas are dragged in the street, stripped naked, humiliated beaten and left for dead in the street they're thrown in prison they're thrown in prison what do they do they sing and they worship god sends an earthquake frees them the jailer sees this what does he do he attempts to hurt himself to take his own life paul and silas intervene the end of the story is that the jailer comes to christ his whole whole, whole household comes to faith in christ The Philippian church has begun. Paul writes the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from a prison cell. He writes knowing. When he says to stand firm in the faith, he writes as one who is standing firm in the faith, who wastes no opportunity. When persecution comes, he seeks to bring glory to God. Paul writes in Ephesians six nineteen to 20, he says, pray also for me. He's sitting in prison. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I speak. We should pray the same thing for our persecuted brothers and sisters. That they would open their mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel in the midst of being enchained. He wrote in Philippians 1, 12-14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul understands that God is working in the midst of his imprisonments. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 11, His own testimony where Paul says five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. That's one lash from death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. "...in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." This is the Paul who writes in Romans 12, "...bless those who persecute you." We may not be experiencing persecution to the extent of what Paul experienced. We may not be experiencing persecution to the extent of those around the globe today, in this moment. But we need to be ready for that type of persecution. We need to be ready to walk out these doors and experience any type of light persecution that could come. But also be ready to endure intense persecution if it comes. The question is when it comes, if it comes, will your faith stand? Will your faith stand? I believe the things that Paul teaches us in Romans 12, 14-21 will help us indeed to do that. So let's look at five godly responses to persecution. Five godly responses to persecution in Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. We see the first one where he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Now, what you'll notice in this passage is that Paul gives a lot of do not do this, but he counters that with do this. We're going to look at the do's. We'll see the negatives. So bless those who persecute you, bless them, and do not curse them. He calls us not to curse them. That is the sinful response, isn't it? That's the easy thing, that when someone persecutes us, we curse them. But Paul says, no, don't do that. Instead of cursing them, ask God to bless them. The, the wording there is, is that used of praying blessing upon someone. So bless them, pray for them. Luke six twenty seven. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Listen, these words that Jesus spoke and the words that Paul speaks in Romans twelve fourteen were just as radical then as they are now. The, the idea that, that you would look and the one who maligns you on Facebook, the one who gossips about you on Twitter, the one who sends false testimony of you around through gossip. He says... To bless those. Don't curse them. He says, Jesus says to love them. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Don't stoop to that level. But we are to show love and concern for them. The call of Christ is to choose the higher road and suffer in a way that declares God's glory above your own. That's the call of Christ. The call of Christ is not to stoop to the level of the world. The call of Christ is to choose the high road and to live for His glory. It's the same thing that we saw from Stephen. You may remember in in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is stoned to death. What is his last statement? you remember? He prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He appeals for God to bless the very ones who are killing him. So Paul starts with blessing those who persecute you. So in our minds, we resolve, we will bless those who persecute us. We will not turn and curse them and do the same to them. The second thing that Paul writes is in verses 15 to 16, that we are to stand as one with the body of Christ. We're to stand as one with the body of Christ. Now, verses 15 and 16 cause some commentators to kind of scratch their head because it seems a little out of place. You know, we've been studying Verses 9, we, we studied all the way up, uh, starting verse 3, and then the section starting verse 9 to 13. And we talked about how Paul is just kind of just firing these commands here. Love what is genuine, uh, or let love be genuine. abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And we talked about how it can almost seem that Paul's just throwing random stuff out, right? But I, I don't think he's doing that. It seems verse 9 through 13 seems to clearly speak to how do we, genuine, or how do we show genuine love to believers, verse 14 to 21, contextually, the whole is related to those outside the body, unbelievers. The the thing that kind of throws a a twist is verse 16. It says, live in harmony with who? With one another. So when we read that, we go, okay, well, he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking here about believers. So what is he meaning? And that causes commentators to scratch their head. But personally, I believe this makes perfect sense. Because when persecution comes, we can't turn in and start fighting among ourselves. We have to continue in unity. We have to continue to love one another, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who have been freed from prison this very week. But we weep with those who sit in prison this very week. We live in harmony with one another. There's a unity among us that is important in the midst of persecution. It's why why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, he says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He wrote the same thing. Remember, he's writing to Philippian church. Where is he writing from? We've already talked about this. He's writing from prison. They're experiencing persecution, persecution that is intensifying and and growing larger and larger and more intense as, as as they go every day. And this is what he writes in Philippians 1, 27. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you hear what what Paul says? He, He calls them to stand firm, but it's not just you stand firm and you stand firm and you stand firm and we hope you all stand firm individually. No, he calls them to stand firm together. They are to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. I believe that's the same thing that Paul's saying here in verses 15 to 16. So today we do indeed weep with those who are weeping and we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Why? Because we are the people of God and we stand with them. And we, as the people of God, must resolve to stand together as one. No matter what the future holds in this nation, the people of God have to stand together as the people of God and not fight within. The third thing that Paul says is verse 17 to 18, where he says, live godly among those who oppose you. Live godly among those who oppose you. He says in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul's calling us to to live godly among those who oppose us. And he gives us two ways to do this. The first thing he says is is there in verse 17. He says, do what is honorable in the sight of all. He he confronts that sinful tendency again. What Our, Our sinful tendency is to repay evil for evil. If someone says something about me, what do I want to do? I want to say something bad about them. If someone gossips about me, what do I want to do? I want to gossip about them. If someone wrongs me at work, I want to wrong them. I want to repay evil for evil. That is the sinful tendency. But he calls us away from that. He says, do what is honorable in the sight of all. It's the same thing in 1 Peter 3, 16 to 17, says, where, where he talks about being prepared to give an answer for the hope that we profess in verse 15. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, Have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When you're slandered, he says. Listen, we need to understand and realize that we are not entitled to not be persecuted. No, if anything, as Christians, we're entitled to suffering, we're entitled to persecution. That's what we need to understand. We need to realize that, that Jesus did indeed say that you heard earlier from one of the ladies that, that they will persecute us. John 15, Jesus is very clear. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It will happen. And, and so Peter writes that we're to have a good conscience. We're to give a hope for the answer for the hope we profess so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior will be put to shame. It will happen. You will be slandered because of your faith. But he says to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, what does that look like? I I would remind you of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. I would remind you and call you to live in a way that exalts Christ. Live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Because Paul says that there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. He says... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these, there is no law. So live those out. Ask God to manifest in you His fruit. If I want to live honorable in the sight of all, I want to respond in a loving way. I want to live with the joy of Christ. I want to have peace in the midst of a trying and chaotic Situation. I want to demonstrate pace, or patience that is from the Lord. I want to demonstrate kindness and gentleness in the way I respond to others. I want to demonstrate goodness towards others. I want to show that I'm faithful to my Lord. I want to act in a way that is showing self-control. But I need God to do that in me. Because that is not my default response. That is a response driven by the Holy Spirit. But it's a response that is honorable In the sight of all. If you respond that way, someone is not gonna look at you and go, I can't believe that, you're just like me. No, they will look and go, wow, that is something different. They may chuckle, they may laugh, but they will not identify and say, that's just like me. See, if we respond evil for evil, then the testimony that's put forward is what? He is just like me. There's no difference. He's just like me. What difference does God make? No. Instead, we don't respond that way. Instead, we do what is godly. So the first thing we do to live godly among those who oppose us is to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The second is, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The writer of Hebrews said the same thing in in Hebrews 12, 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone. Matthew 5, 5, 9, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I love what John Stott wrote on that, on that verse in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he observed this. He said, God made peace with us at immense cost, even at the price of the lifeblood of His only Son. We too, though in our lesser ways, will find peacemaking a costly enterprise. We are called to live at peace with everyone. We are called, as far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with all. John or Paul says. It could cost our pride. It could cost your reputation. It could cost your well-being. But we're called to strive for peace. So the question is: when the pressures of persecution and oppression come, will you strive for peace? Will you strive to be a peacemaker? Or will you stir up strife? Will you make it worse? Will you speak badly of those who persecute you, slandering their character and creating animosity? Or will you be a peacemaker? Will you respond in a way that exalts God and advances the gospel? The fourth thing that Paul says he says to trust God to bring ultimate justice, verses 19 to 20. When we are wronged, our fleshly reaction is what? Is to do evil, seek vengeance. And Paul says, do not seek vengeance. We demand that a wrong be made right, don't we? That's our fleshly response, is to demand that a wrong be made right, even if it means taking it into our own hands. That's not the way of the people of God. See, the way of the people of God is that we trust the plan of God. We understand that the people of God are called to be faithful and loving towards others while trusting Him to act and bring justice in His timing, not ours. We trust God. And we acknowledge and realize that vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is not mine. Why? Because that sin was not ultimately against me. That sin is against God. And He will enact vengeance. He will enact wrath in His timing. Listen, this is, I don't know if you realize this. I don't know if you, like me, grew up VBS and church. Your little corner of the Bible belt. That you've been so conditioned to think this is no big deal. I've heard this before. Vengeance is not mine. Yeah, I know. That gets a lot more difficult. It gets a lot more difficult, I would imagine. Because I can't say that I've experienced it. When your family is laying beaten and bleeding on the floor. It's much more difficult when you stand on the sidewalk and look at your home in ashes. It's much more difficult when we are standing in our parking lot and our church is leveled. In those moments, the calling is not pick up arms and enact vengeance. The calling is to pray for them, to bless them, to not take vengeance, but to trust God to take vengeance, to leave it to Him. This is, a, this is a radical call when it comes upon us. The fifth thing that Paul says is verse 21. I think it's his final word. Kind of the, the summary statement. He says to do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When others seek to destroy and harm God's people, we seek to do them good. It's what he said through these verses. We long to see their salvation. We hope to see God work in their lives. We want to see people go from being Saul, the persecutor, to Paul. Perhaps even the persecuted. We want to see people's lives transformed. We want to see them blessed by the grace of God, just as we've been blessed by the grace of God. So our standard of measure is not to enact evil for evil. Our standard of measure is not the response of the world, but the response of God. It's the standard of God. So we do not enact evil for evil. We do not strike back, lash out, slander, ridicule, or belittle just like we have been experienced or have experienced. We overcome evil by doing good. And I think the question then that leaves us at this point, we think about these things when we're, if we're really honest with ourselves. And I would say really honest because, again, I think it's easy in the confines of this place, in these walls, dressed in our nice Sunday clothes, peaceably sitting here, I think it's easy to to nod our heads and say, yep. But when it comes upon us, whether it is the light persecution that we experience in the United States or whether it is the intense persecution that we see around the globe, whatever it is, when it comes upon us, the question is how can we possibly do this? How can we do the things that Paul says to do? And I would say the way that we do that is Christ, the hope of glory in us. That's the only way we can do that is Christ living in us. Colossians 1, 24-27, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The reality is that we can stand ready for persecution, we can endure persecution, we can walk through persecution and say what Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of his body because Christ changes our perspective. This is important. This is important. We have experienced a perspective shift when we come to Christ. One that says what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, that we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our perspective has changed in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. It has changed. And so we look to Christ, and we serve Christ. We have experienced this radical life change, and so we can indeed endure suffering. And we endure it in such a way that we look and we say, this is merely some light momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that waits us in the presence of God in glory. What an amazing thought that is, that we shift and we think and we see what is above and what is before, not, as, not what is around. We look to Christ. We have experienced God's life-changing power, and it shifts our perspective. And you need to know that this morning. If you sit here this morning, you go, how in the world could somebody do that? How could someone turn the other cheek? How could someone actually pray for someone who just beat them? How could someone sit down and share the gospel for someone who walked in their church and littered it with bullets? Do you remember that? Is it South Carolina? The young man walked in and mowed everybody down in the church. And at the trial, when he stands up and they ask, is there anything you would like to say? Those church members stood up and said, we love you, we forgive you, and we want you to know Christ. That is not worldly. That is of God. That is of God. Christ's suffering leads us to suffer well. It leads us to live not for ourselves, but for Christ. It leads us to live not for this world, but for our home and glory. And so I just want to leave you with three implications, very briefly. Three implications of what this means for us. Here's the first one. Is that we must resolve today to stand firm tomorrow. We must resolve today to stand firm tomorrow. Doing what Daniel did in Daniel 1.8. It says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself of the king's food. He had set his mind and his will ahead of time. That he would not conform to the ways of the world and the culture around him. We need to resolve today to stand, for, stand firm tomorrow. Set our will toward standing firm. Listen, the day will come. The day will come. If you are living for Christ, that you will experience light persecution or intense persecution. Resolve today to stand firm. The second thing is that we must prepare today to stand firm tomorrow. Not only do we need to resolve in our mind, but we need to prepare today to stand firm tomorrow. My, my sermon prep just looked a little different this week because I, I studied... The word, the text, I went through, I made my notes, and I studied the the commentaries. But as I did, the whole week, I had two things sitting there. I had a copy of The Voice of the Martyrs sitting there, so I knew what was going on. And I dabbled in and just read some sermons from a book called The Sermons from the Great Ejection. It happened in 1662 in England when those who sought to reform the church and were preaching the gospel and preaching sound doctrine were demanded to conform to the Church of England. And when they did not conform, they were sent out of their church. It was made illegal to be in their church, so over 1,800 pastors in 1662 preached their last sermon in their church. And they became what was known as conventiclers, who secretly led churches and teachings around their communities, in their homes, in their basements they were not allowed to preach publicly. One of these preachers, one of these pastors was Thomas Lye, and I I read his sermon called uh, to to stand, remain steadfast in faith, and I want to just share a few things that he told his people that last day before he was cast out of his church by the state. He says this, he says, hold fast to a God who decrees, to a Christ who redeems, to a a spirit who quickens, to a Gospel which promises to a heaven which is prepared to a God who is infinitely more ready to save you than you can possibly be desirous to be saved by Him. Later, he writes and preaches, When you grow unsteady, you dishonor Christ in His sufferings. Pray tell me, believers, why did Christ sweat blood? Why did He die? Why did He undergo what the wrath of devils could inflict? Was it not for this end to make you stand in that conquest triumphing? Christ died that you might live, that you might stand. And what dishonor to the eternal Savior of the world, to a dying Savior, to see a flying Christian. It was never heard of that soldiers would fly before a conquered enemy whose legs were cut off, whose arms were broken, and whose swords were taken from them. Christ has already won the victory. That's what he's saying here. Christ has won the victory. Why in the world would we flee from the enemy? He, he says this is crazy i've never heard of a soldier who would fly before a conquered enemy whose legs were cut off arms broken and his swords were taken from them we wouldn't flee from that why in the world would we flee from persecution why would we flee from the onslaught of the enemy why would we flee from one who has already been defeated and finally he says i could tell you of those enjoyments the blessings that god has given you and he says our miseries have been great this is a man who's preaching his last sermon Our miseries have been great, but our mercies have been greater. God cannot forsake His people. He may forsake them as to comfort, but He will never forsake them as to support. Let Him lay on a burden. He will be sure to strengthen the back. Do you hear that? I want you to hear that again. God cannot forsake His people. He may forsake them as To comfort. But he will never forsake them as to support. We have a lot of comfort, don't we? And it could be taken away. But if it's taken away, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never cease to support you and uphold you. So I say we have to prepare today to stand firm tomorrow. We have to prepare. What are you doing today to strengthen your faith? How are you deepening your walk with the Lord? How are you equipping yourself to stand firm? Parents, this is an important admonition to you. To prepare today to stand firm tomorrow, not just for yourself, but for your kids. Do not pass on a weak and a timid faith that is only strong when you're sitting in this place. Young people, if you're considering trusting Christ, you need to know that the days ahead are likely going to be difficult. You need to know that we are not guaranteed our Christianity to look like this in the days ahead. It may. This may endure for 50, 75, 100 years. But it may not. It may look more like what we saw on the screen. It may sound more like the testimonies we heard. And you need to be prepared to stand firm tomorrow. And the final implication is that we need to pray today for those who are standing firm today. We need to pray for our fellow believers. So we need to resolve today to stand firm tomorrow. We need to prepare today to stand firm tomorrow. we need to pray, pray today for those who are standing firm today. We have brothers and sisters around the globe, as you've already heard. We have weak knees who are enduring atrocities that we can't imagine. And we must resolve to pray for these brothers and sisters. And we pray knowing the words of Christ. In John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes and amen to that. Let's pray. Father, we... Bow today thankful God for the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation but God we bow knowing that this is not our primary citizenship our primary citizenship as your people is that we are citizens of heaven and so God our hope is in you our hope is in Christ the hope of glory in us and God we resolve today that we will stand firm tomorrow in you. And God, we are going to prepare ourselves to do that. God, we ask that you would grow us in you, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would deepen our knowledge of your word, that we would not be those who are just carrying out some superficial cultural Christianity that just comes into church and sits and and sings and hears a message and leaves and forgets it for the rest of the week. God, we want to be the people... Who are growing in you, drawing near to you, being strengthened in our faith for you, and readying ourselves for the day in which persecution comes upon us, that we would stand firm for you and for your body. So, God, strengthen us to do that. And God, we resolve to be those who do not forget our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted in an intense and life-threatening ways around the country. Those who are being cast out of their families, out of their villages. Their homes who are in shackles in prison who are being beaten whose lives are at stake God strengthen their faith we pray steady them set their gaze upon you increase their faith we ask in the name of Christ amen stand with us this morning as we close our time Singing, He will hold me fast.